Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Thank you, Tony Armstrong, for the inspiration. Congratulations on the Loki. I am Benjamin Castle. I am Ethan Castle. We are Americans Watching the Footy, and this is our round 14 recap. Only six games this round, but a lot of news coming out of the AFL in general this week and around Australia with the Socceroos' success. First off, just wanted to preface things by saying I'm pretty burned out. I've had a very long weekend working. I was on staff for a local youth baseball tournament, which was a lot of fun, but some long days. So if I sound kind of checked out, that's why. Also worth noting that after Tuesday, we are going to be doing three episodes remotely because I'm going to be traveling, checking off Major League Ballparks 23 and 24. So I will be visiting Ohio and Michigan. Never been to either of those states. That'll put me at 32 states out of 50. So if you like lesser audio quality, get excited. You know, coming into this week, I didn't think that we'd be glossing over the fact that Bailey Smith's two-game suspension for the whole cocaine thing was confirmed. And yeah, there's been some discussion around whether the length of the suspension is appropriate, but that's not the big story to come out of this week. And quite frankly, if Smith doing what he did in the offseason and not coming to light now is bringing the game to disrepute, how is whatever the hell Jordan Degoe's done in Bali during his bye not that, or what he did in New York in the offseason. I don't get the sort of double standard. I mean, I get that controlled substances are one thing, but I mean, you got a player with an assault and harassment case in New York, and now pulling off a woman's top in a video clubbing in Bali when he's already shown himself to be an unreliable character, shall we say? I don't really get it. Let's keep in mind what happened in this video seems to be completely consensual, which is important and good. According to the woman involved, that's the case. Nonetheless, not a good look at all. I mean, I think we can move past the living in fear of COVID, but also I don't know if traveling to another country while on your buy is a great idea. It seems like it's extremely rare. I think Jordan Lewis said that the only time that he had known of a teammate doing that was when one of them had a partner that was in America. This isn't any family thing. It's just, I'm going to blow off some steam in Bali and end up looking really bad for doing it. I mean, I think there are enough places within the country where you could do things like that. I mean, think back to when we were also worrying about COVID and Callum Coleman Jones and Sydney Stack getting into a fight on the Gold Coast or the unspeakable former Sydney player and everything with the hotel. 
I think if it wasn't Jordan Degoe, if it was a player without his track record, it would just be kind of like a, huh, that's odd, but wouldn't be as big a deal. I think the biggest reason Degoe shouldn't be doing something like this is he's going to be a free agent this offseason. The on-field ability has never been questioned, but there might be some clubs that look at what he's done off the field and either say he's not worth a big financial risk and offer him less money than he would get for his talent, or maybe some clubs that just wouldn't want to have anything to do with him at all. I mean, he's a damn good player. We know that. But at this point, when he's basically auditioning for potential suitors, I think it's more the off-field stuff that he needs to represent himself well with. Because again, the on-field talent, we know it's there. We don't have to go into a whole exploration of his abilities I think all 18 clubs know he's a good player. Most teams would take a player of his caliber if they have the roster spot or if they have, you know, the opening on their depth chart for him, the financial capital to do so. It's just a matter of, is he worth the potential headaches? And this is the sort of thing that would suggest that there are going to be more headaches. Now, I don't know what he had cleared up with Collingwood officials before he went. If anything. I mean, these players ought to be responsible for themselves. A club isn't going to entirely hold their hands. They're all adults and should and should be expected to behave properly. I mean, yeah, let them know where you're going. Don't pull a Jason Horn Francis and completely leave them out of the loop. But the club should be able to put the trust in their players that they're doing the right thing. However, there's a bit of a wrinkle to say the least when it's Jagoey. And furthermore, with the whole player club relations, I believe it was the Herald Sun that reported that he was going to have a Monday meeting with club officials, but he was nowhere to be seen at the club on Monday and was reported unlikely to be at training that afternoon. Don't think it was mandatory, but everyone else was there. So this is a still developing story, and we'll probably have more to say about it when we record our round 15 preview. But really, that wasn't the biggest scandal of the round. The biggest scandal of round 14 was Shea Bolton dangling the ball out to showboat. I don't understand why this is such a big deal. Maybe this is some short-sightedness because we're not in the Australian sporting culture. I can tell that the sort of exuberance that these players are expressing is a lot newer and less common and just more frowned upon in general than it is in America. I mean, we're still getting to the point where bat flips are starting to be widely accepted. It's the same sort of struggle that American sports are going through. This kind of debate over, you know, act like you've been there before versus you're playing a game, have fun with it. So I think it's similar. I just think this one event in particular got blown way out of proportion. It's ridiculous that it dominated the headlines the day after a damn good football game with all sorts of twists and turns. Richmond did end up settling the score with Carlton to split the season series. Richmond got out to a 35-point lead in the second quarter, and then Carlton made it interesting, getting all the way to within eight with about 10 minutes left, but the Tigers did hold on from there. Really impressive, convincing team win. And a game where I thought Blues just didn't play that well. This was a game where Richmond was the better team long-term, and Carlton was able to make things close because they had huge success in very short flashes, but it wasn't enough to add up to a win. The defensive injuries the Carlton have suffered really got exposed in this game. Not so much the fault of the defenders that were out there, because they were being forced into bigger roles than they're supposed to have, and the depth just 
didn't hold up there. You know, I thought Lewis Young had a really poor game, but he was asked to do a lot more than he normally does. So it's logical that that would happen. It was Richmond 11-15-81, defeating Carlton 9-12-66. And with the conditions being somewhat wet, even with the anti-do or whatever it was that they put on the field, I'd never heard of that before. But Richmond's game was more suited to the conditions. They were really strong on ground ball gets. Forcing turnovers has been their forte during this three-flag era. And between that and just good clearance play overall, I think the numbers in that regard speak for themselves. Both teams gave up the ball a lot. Richmond actually gave up the ball seven more times, 100 to 93. But when you win the clearances by 14, 41 to 27, it doesn't really matter that much. You're getting the more valuable possessions. Richmond won 13 to 9 from the center, 28 to 18 from stoppages. There were plus 25 on inside 50, 76 to 51. That's a really high raw number and differential. So even against a good team, you can afford to not make good on all of your chances when you're running that well. Dion Prestia drove a lot of that ground ball and clearance success. 13 clearances is obscene. Toby Nankervis, Trent Cotchin kept up as well. Nank with six of his own. Cotchin with five, even though Cotchin with five, and that was despite only being on ground for 69% of the game. Nice. Fractured his collarbone, actually, so he'll be out next week. But I mentioned in the round preview that Richmond have all these plug-and-play guys. So many of their players are versatile that even with one good piece out, they aren't in trouble. It's not like Melbourne where if their defensive backbone is out, no one can really cover for them. What they've got right now is a lot like a slide puzzle. I don't know if those little toys are common in Australia. It's like, you know, the type of thing you'd get thrown in with like a Happy Meal at Macca's or something. You've seen a blown up version on Survivor probably. I would assume they still have slide puzzle challenges in the Australian version. But that's kind of what Richmond's team is like right now, where you can just, you know, you know what the pieces are and it's just a matter of how can we best organize them. Some key sequences in this one that are worth discussing. Carlton looked really bad to start. Couldn't kick straight. Richmond led 20-4 to after a quarter. Tigers go into halftime with a 25-point lead because they went end-to-end to close the half. Noah Balta ahead to Jack Graham and eventually to Tom Lynch, who was able to walk in his third goal of the night. And that was big because then the Blues made a pretty good push in the third, getting to within 14. Tigers got back up to a 27-point lead when Jack Revolt drew his third holding the ball call of the night. That goal also moved him 16th on the all-time list at 739. And then all of a sudden, the Blues found some late life. Harry Mackay got going with three straight goals, cut the lead to 72-63. They nearly got the lead down to three because Jack Nunes thought he had a goal, but it was touched by Nathan Broad. This was a call that became a source of some controversy on review, but I really do think they got the call right. I don't think any player would have the wherewithal to start going, don't mind if I do, with their fingers almost going jazz hand-like to try to get the touch call. I mean, I think that umpires would be able to see through that. Having said that, the arc cameras should be a whole lot better. Look at what Fox has for baseball with how ridiculously slow motion you can get. Look at the video a number of years back from Hunter Pence of the San Francisco Giants hitting the ball three times in one swing. You should be able to have that sort of camera quality, especially at the biggest venues for those important calls. The Tigers then counterattacked and stretched the lead back out to 14 on a Shane Edwards goal. And after a Mackay miss with 4.16 left, left the deficit at 16, the Tigers were able to control pace and bleed the clock out. 
We've talked about Carlton's inability to adjust to time and score, you know, in the context of them protecting a lead. If they want to learn how to do that, they should just look at how Richmond was able to bleed out the final minutes in this game. Digging deeper just to throw it away? Only they didn't throw it away. I mean, they threw it to a place where Carlton couldn't get it. There were a couple of clear position groups where Richmond had an advantage. Let's remember Dustin Martin was out with flu-like symptoms, and they managed to do just fine without him. Tom Lynch kicked three goals, Shea Bolton and Jack Revolt with two apiece. I had expected Lynch to have an easier time with the outs for Carlton. As you said earlier, they were thrust into a really difficult situation, and Lynch is bound to win some of those matchups anyway. He just won more of them than he usually would have. Richmond really had the advantage in both 50s as their defenders were able to really shut down Carlton's small forwards. Jack Silvani didn't do a ton. Zach Fisher didn't have a very big game. So Richmond's defenders were able to really keep up there because Carlton's small forwards, you know, as good as Mackay was and as much as he took over later in the game, ended up finishing with four goals, including three in a row. Other than that, like I said, this was a game where Carlton were better for very brief windows, but overall, Richmond were the superior team. The Richmond defenders largely didn't get overwhelmed, and that's something that very few teams have been able to say. You look at the way Carlton's forwards, both big and small, really just overwhelmed teams, and that did not happen. Watching live, I was really impressed with Nick Boston, Liam Baker, and Dylan Grimes for their one-on-one work. They got to the right places. And they just got good position pretty much every time they were consistently winning those battles. There's a potential asterisk for Grimes because I thought he was a bit handsy on Charlie Curnow at times. I thought he could have gotten a holding call or two. But regardless, Richmond were the better defensive team. They were the better team overall. Flawstone had 24 disposals and 10 intercepts. Grimes with eight intercepts playing on Kerno was really impressive. Liam Baker was able to play everywhere, mostly started out of defense, gained 468 meters and had it behind when he pushed forward. Also had 27 disposals and seven marks. Dion Presti's aforementioned 13 clearances drove a lot of Richmond's success. He ended up with 33 touches and is more than a contention for the top votes. Jane Short with 25, 9 intercepts, nearly gained a kilometer, just 11 meters short at 989. And Jack Graham is an octopus yet again, 19 disposals and 10 tackles, but a crash. Tentacles. Looking at the numbers between Richmond and Carlton, it's clear that Richmond's numbers were a lot more productive and conducive to scoring, whereas Carlton's were more defensive, looking at the meters gained as well as the intercepts. For Carlton, Patrick Cripps, 34 disposals. Sam Walsh, 34 disposals, 520 meters gained. Sam Doherty, a really quality game, 31 disposals, 11 marks, 9 intercepts, gained 748 meters. Adam Saad, 25 disposals, 15 intercepts, 477 meters, and bounced the ball way too many times to count. Seems like he bounced it way too quickly, just like takes one step out of the goal square, bounce. I mean, you have 15 meters for a reason. It's not like you could stockpile them, just like bounce three times and then be able to run 45 meters scot-free. At least that way, you know he's never going to get called for a 15 meter. Although, look, a lot of times it's closer to 20 that you can actually get away with. And for Patrick Cripps, it's probably 30. Lockie O'Brien had one of his better games. A goal of behind, 24 disposals and 494 meters gained. Nick Newman, 20 disposals, 8 marks and 8 intercepts. Makai with 4 goals and 2 behinds. Jordan Boyd, 11 intercepts. Lockie Plowman, 8 intercepts. But as I mentioned, Lewis Young really struggled. And 
Sam Durton was asked to do a lot for a midseason draft pick. He couldn't really write a Hollywood script. He was okay, but he was not the superstar they needed him to be, considering that they're missing Jacob Wiedering. They were missing Adam Chera for this game. And then it turned out afterwards that we're not going to be confusing the Durdens with each other because Sam Durden suffered a knee injury and will be unavailable for at least the next week. Again, no relation, we believe. But this is a really difficult spot for Carlton to be in. They've slipped out of the top four. They're two and two versus the current top eight. And they have five of their last nine against those positions. The next two, Fremantle and St. Kilda. And then the last three at the Gabba against Brisbane. And then Melbourne and Collingwood. Where do you see things panning out for them? I still believe they're a finals team. But I think their ability to adjust is going to be tested. Or else this could be a very quick finals appearance. You know, they could end up slipping as low as 7th or 8th and end up getting bounced right away. But I still think this team's ceiling is really high. I'm really worried about the Geelong game against them. That's one that I've had circled for a while. And the Cats have a bunch of good games coming up, but that one in particular really stands out to me. And I'm not sure what that is that's causing that. It is really nice, though, honestly, to be talking about Carlton this way when this is year one for Michael Voss. Usually, this would be a type of conversation that you might hear in year two, would hopefully hear in year three or four. They're far ahead of where anyone expected them to be. Looking at another team with a newer coach in Essendon, especially after they disappointed against Carlton in their sesquicentennial game last round, I still love saying that word. I think I actually learned that from the special 2000 license plates that were given out in California. But they're on the opposite end of things where they're behind where we expected them to be in year two under Ben Rutten. A step back was largely expected, but not as severe as it's been. However, some of that talk, however, that talk is largely on pause after this week because they shut up St. Kilda in easily the most surprising result of the round. They just found themselves. They looked a lot more composed from the back. Massimo D'Ambrosio's impact upon debut could not be understated. Another strong performance from Sam Draper, who has inspired some excellent shirt designs on the Carlton Draft website. I'm especially fond of the Drake Nothing Was the Same shirt. Not a sponsor, but we'd welcome them as a sponsor. Their stuff is awesome. There's also a Simpsons parody, of course, because it's Australia, a parody of Mattingly Take Back Those Sideburns. Don Mattingly, for those of you who don't know him outside of Take Back Those Sideburns, is the manager of the Miami Marlins. By all means, seems like a really nice guy, was a very good hitter in his career, but can't manage for shit. He's an awful manager. Bringing the discussion back to the footy, great work from D'Ambrosio on, looked really polished and was probably making some list managers really doubt themselves after he was entirely passed over in the national draft. Draper successful. Peter Wright converted on a lot more of his shots. And it was just the type of game that we'd been expecting from Essendon for a while. Pulled away by 35. St. Kilda 11-6-72, defeated by Essendon 15-17-107. St. Kilda just fell flat, and I would not have expected it in this round altogether. Between the matchup and the fact that I expected them to come out a lot more inspired for Spud's game. This was definitely the Saints' worst performance of the year, but I left this game less disappointed with them and more thrilled with how Essendon played because it seems like there was a real breakthrough there. They obviously still need to improve a lot in terms of actual stay-at-home defenders. I mean, Mason Redmond is a very good ball-moving defender, so is Nick Hind, but... 
They don't have a lot of proper, you know, tagging, marking type defenders right now. The good news is they didn't need that when they just bum-rushed the Saints the moment they had the ball. They showed some incredible forward pressure. And that's the best thing for them with thin defensive ranks, even without a whole lot of injuries back there. You noted that you're more than happy with Essendon starting 1-4 just because of the fact that they got as many shots as they did as quickly as they did. For a team that's had a more successful season, you would look at the start of that game and say, man, they really pissed away some opportunities and they're going to regret it. But for Essendon, it was like, wow, there's new defensive structure here. This is a team that looks so flat and uninspired and overall shitty in their club's biggest celebration of the year. And they came out in turn in what was one of St. Kilda's biggest nights of the year, a game where obviously winning this one game in particular, not just because it's Spud's game, but because it's against a team at the bottom of the ladder that you need to take care of. This game meant a lot more to St. Kilda, and yet Essendon came out and played their asses off. They were inspired, they were focused, they had a real approach, and it's the sort of game that really restores faith in Ben Rutten's coaching ability. I think having him coach from the sidelines really gives him a chance to do some in-the-moment hands-on instruction, and it seemed like he was doing a lot of that. Though the fact that it took a one-time All-Australian fullback 13 games to figure out the defensive structure is a little bit damning. You mentioned a few guys who stood out. I thought Jai Caldwell had a pretty nice game. Archie Perkins is one of the more fun spark plug forwards. And that's the thing. This team has a lot of forwards that can act as a spark plug. And it's going to be kind of a matter of how do they take inventory, figure out which of those guys to ride with and which ones maybe they look at trading as they look to bolster things defensively. I was really thinking that Caldwell got more of the ball with Darcy Parrish out and it was the best thing for Essendon because it meant they weren't spending nearly as much time outside of contests. They showed a whole lot of ability in swarming around the ball, making the most of those sloppier passages of play. With a young team, that's more than welcome. The fact, for example, that Harry Jones got two goals, despite not really playing that well overall, is a sign that this sort of constantly attacking, moving toward the ball type of game is working for him. It was also Dylan Shields' best performance of the year. A healthy Jake Stringer really made a difference as well. But even if Essendon basically just kicked behinds all game, if they kicked at that sort of 1-4 clip all game, you know, if they had ended up kicking like, 624 or something. My takeaway from this game still would have been, look at the forward pressure. Look at the defensive structure. They finally had a breakthrough. Also, you mentioned Massimo D'Ambrosio. Shouts out to his entire family being in the room after the game. Was the highlight of roaming BT. I love seeing multiple nonos in there. That's a very Italian family. Clearly, he's no more than a second or third generation immigrant. In terms of team breakthroughs, when it does come to goal kicking, Holy cow, they kicked a fourth quarter goal. In fact, they kicked two of them. It took them a while. They kicked a crap ton of behinds first. Six of them. But they finally got the fourth quarter goal. And there was much rejoicing. There were a few different times in this game where the Bombers showed resiliency, where I thought, all right, they've had their fun. They've inspired me. They've impressed me. But ultimately, the better team's going to prevail. For example, after that start where they kicked 1-4, the Saints got a couple quick goals. Essendon then turned it around and went up by 16 after a quarter. They staved off pressure and got a really important goal by Peter Wright with 55 seconds left in the first half to go into the breakup, 28. And that was massive because the Saints came all the way back to tie it at 51. 
very early in the third. St. Kilda scored five goals in the first eight minutes of the third quarter. And you thought, all right, they've adjusted. Here are the third quarter Saints. Can Essendon weather this storm and maybe do enough to win this game? And instead of weathering the storm, they were the storm. A nice mark by Sam Draper set up Matt Guelphie for a goal to cap off a six-goal response. They went into the fourth up by 37. And yes, the Saints did get it down to 18 with about eight minutes left. But even with Essendon's fourth quarter kicking woes, they still put the game away. Andrew Phillips had a really important clearance to prevent St. Kilda from pushing for a third goal in a two-minute stretch. And I'm starting to understand, you know, I like Nick Bryan, but this is a team that has another good second ruck in Phillips. Not to mention, you barely need a second ruck when you have Sam Draper doing his thing. I'd hesitate calling Phillips a second ruck and say that it's more of a 1A, 1B situation. His presence has allowed Draper to push forward more, become kind of an auxiliary key guy. And he's good at it. He's a really good mark. And his kicking is getting better as well. And I was just really impressed with Phillips and Draper overall. I mean, they outdid Rowan Marshall and Patty Ryder. And Marshall is one of those players who makes good things happen whenever he touches the ball, whether it's a hit out to advantage, a clearance, just any sort of possession. And he was beaten. This game has completely changed my perspective on Essendon. I know it's just one game, but they definitely had a breakthrough there that I think will make them competitive the rest of the season. And it shows where their strengths are, because we know that they've got a bunch of good forwards. They've got some good midfielders. It's just a matter of getting the right mix and fitting them into the right style. And that's where Parrish's fit has been so awkward, as we've seen how they played with and without him. And if they're able to reshuffle these deck chairs properly, this is going to be a team that next year is back to being, at the very least, a middle-of-the-pack outside shot of finals. And they're not going to be the absolute dumpster fire that they were for the first 12 games this year. We'll be interesting to see how Rutten decides to shuffle those chairs around when Andrew McGrath goes right back out of the side, had a really good game where he looked really natural at halfback, but ended up with an adductor strain. Key stats for Essendon. Mason Redmond, 31 disposals and 11 marks. Zach Merritt, 26 disposals, 7 tackles. Nick Hine, 25 disposals and 9 intercepts. Dylan Shield, 25 disposals and 10 score involvements. Jai Caldwell, 23 disposals and 7 tackles. Jake Stringer, 2 goals, 2 behinds, 9 score involvements and 6 tackles. And despite a bit of a slow start, snakebite Peter Wright, 4 goals, 2 behinds, all part of a 12 score involvement appearance. Alternatively, two meter Peter, the snake bite thing actually comes from the world of darts, which we are somehow also slightly invested in every time the world championship rolls around. Basically, darts makes it onto like the local sports affiliates that don't get to show NFL games. One of the really interesting things in American TV programming is seeing what sports channels that don't have the NFL televised during NFL programming where they just kind of throw something in. It's like, well, we're obligated to air this or, you know, let's find something that the people who aren't interested in the NFL will enjoy. Especially for the later slots when it isn't going up against soccer. It ends up becoming like, I wouldn't say it becomes ESPN 8, the Ocho, but maybe ESPN 5 or 6. One way or the other, Peter Wright stepped up. Stringer clearly took Rutten's comments to heart and maybe he was just in better health. But this was Essendon's game. I think you now look at those comments that Rutten made about Stringer, and maybe it was something where he wanted to kind of call out the entire team. 
but actually referring to one guy by name kind of turns more heads, gets people to pay a little bit more attention, and he might have known that, all right, Stringer's someone who can handle this criticism, and he's going to respond to it positively, where a lot of guys would probably respond to it negatively. And obviously, it had the desired effect. I just hope that it isn't something that, you know, becomes a whole thing after the fact. Like, at the time, we thought, great job, David Noble, you called your team out. And then weeks later, it's like, oh, maybe this didn't actually do what it should have. We'll probably have a lot more to take away from this in August, at the very least, when the home and away is wrapping up. Was surprised that Truck outcoached Brett Ratton, who I thought had done some smart things all season. I thought that putting Tim Memory further back in the second quarter was really smart. It allowed Brad Hill and Jack Sinclair to get into the game more. And wouldn't you know it, they had some pretty big stat hauls at the very least. Hill with 26 disposals, 10 marks, and 517 meters gained. Sinclair with 31 disposals, gained 449 meters. But Memory was put back in his normal spot for the second half, and the good defensive work that he had done kind of went to waste. It looked like it might have paid dividends early on when the Saints tied it, but when they started bleeding goals again, I thought, all right, this is the time when you make this change again, and it didn't happen. Here's the thing. It definitely helped them stabilize defensively, but it may have compromised their offense in the process because the stretches when he played back, they were really sharp defensively, but they also weren't able to score at the other end. It was a good move to help kind of restore the momentum of the game and start shifting the tide back. But at some point, you're going to need to do something to make up that four, five goal deficit. And having memory back defensively isn't going to do that, especially when he's one of the guys where good things happen when he touches the ball. Although you noted, and I would agree, you know, I've said every team seems to have that one guy where when he touches the ball, good things happen. I hammer it home every week with Brad Close. Maybe Rowan Marshall is actually that guy for the Saints. And also, memory being so important anywhere he plays kind of exposes a weakness for St. Kilda in that just moving around one piece can compromise some part of their game a whole lot. Kind of like the anti-Richmond. Now, Daniel McKenzie and Mitch Owens were out concussed, so that definitely affected things in the center and half forward, but it's not great that so few adjustments can totally change their entire style and scoring output for better or for worse. Just another couple stats. Josh Battle had nine intercepts, was tested a lot defensively, and shown more than Callum Wilkie, which was a bit of a surprise. Jade Gresham was the most effective forward overall. Three goals in a behind, 28 disposals, 524 meters gained. Was surprised Max King was so quiet. 1-1 on 10 disposals, just four marks. I thought King was going to have an easier time with Jordan Ridley, but Ridley did all right for himself, and I don't think King moved toward the ball, gave leads nearly as much as he needed to, and that's been criticism that's permeated the entire year. Maybe he needs to take more cues from what his twin brother has done in his best work at Gold Coast. Of course, obviously, Ben is out this year, but he's a lot more of a runner, and that's helped the Suns game a lot. Maybe Max needs to become more of that himself, clearly in his genes that he can do it. How much of that is a mental thing versus, you know, tactical talent stuff, being matched up with top opponents? I think it's more on the mental side. I think it's really, sometimes he just has to realize, I'm a motherfucker, and just take over. We've talked about Sydney being too reliant on Buddy Franklin for stuff like that, but the fact is, Buddy gets after it and says, all right, I'm going to take over, come fuck with me. And Max King probably could use 
that same sort of approach. When we previewed Port Adelaide against Sydney, we briefly mentioned that Peter Adams would be making his return, and he ended up getting talked about a lot. He made his return and then some. He was going to be featured prominently because Tom Hickey was out and because he'd be going up against debutante Bryn Tickle for all of about a half before Bryn broke his collarbone. There's been this theme recently of guys getting hurt on debut, and it was more inconsistent this week, but Tika was an unfortunate victim of, I guess it's a curse at this point. Met the Port were kind of back to where they were last week, with Jeremy Finlayson now the first ruck, and not necessarily getting as many direct hits, but being good immediately out of the contest. As a West Coast Eagles fan, I understand where they're coming from with that. But despite that setback for the power, and despite them being without both Robbie Gray and Travis Boak for the first time since round 21 of 2012, they responded to the Swans being the better team early on. They weathered a bit of a storm there. Their defense figured out where they went wrong early. Alir Alir had a great game after getting caught in between a couple of Sydney's talls early on and letting Buddy score their first goal. Sydney led 19-8, but Port finished the first quarter on a 19-point run of their own. They were even throughout the second quarter, and then Port really turned it on in the third, kicking six goals to one. Connor Rosie played an excellent game, didn't even mention that Zach Butters also went down really early after actually being a factor, which was a pleasant surprise, and Port were completely unfazed by that as well. Even though they didn't kick a goal in the final quarter, they controlled the pace of play and they shocked both of us, ended up winning by 23 points, Port 12-10-82 to Sydney 8-11-59. Doesn't tell as much of the story. I'd say it's more indicative that Port outscored Sydney 40-21 to in the second half. They built on some of their better work that they'd done early. We actually saw some positive adjustments from Ken Hankley. Rosie broke out at the right time. Mitch Georgiatis coming back in did well. Thought he was really functional in the middle third of the ground, which I didn't exactly expect from him. A perfectly cromulent performance. Definitely helped to embiggen the power score. And you can talk all you want about Sydney not taking advantage of some good matchups, and Laddam's not making the most of his ruck time in his return to Adelaide, but I just leave incredibly positive about the way Port have trended since round six. This is the game where they were tested the most in terms of their list, and they were far superior. Looking at their remaining schedule, we talked about how it was going to be an uphill climb for Port Adelaide, and it still will be. Their game against Gold Coast this coming week is suddenly huge, and they're going to have to punch above their perceived weight class in order to make finals, and a performance like they had in that third quarter is going to be necessary in order to steal some points against a team like Fremantle or Melbourne in order to manage to leverage their way into a top eight spot. It's a crowded race. They put themselves behind the pack. And this performance showed that there is a path to finals footy for the power in 2022. It's not an easy path. They haven't done themselves a lot of favors, but this is the sort of performance that restores your belief that, hey, maybe they could do something here. Admittedly, Laddams did give them two of those six goals in the third. One of those from tackling Lockie Jones way off the ball. He gave up a downfield, which Sam Powell Pepper converted with ease. And then he punched Ollie Wines in the gut. A downfield got paid to Charlie Dixon. That stretched the lead to 36. And I think that ended up being the knockout blow, pun completely intended. But instead of the punch being the knockout blow, it was the goal that happened after it. 
even without Laddam's stupidity, I think Port would have ended up having a similar final margin. They controlled the game by and large from the end of the first quarter onward when they went on that run. Todd Marshall continued his good work, not getting phased even when he did miss, worked through pretty much any defensive matchup they threw on him. We were talking about who was best to match up with him, and on Saturday, it ended up being no one. I want to talk for a moment about the mental side of overcoming a bad kick. You know, being a key forward where you're not going to get that many touches, you can't let a bad play linger because you could go, you know, 15 minutes without getting the ball. And then if that's still weighing on you and the ball comes back your way, it's going to lead to another crappy kick. Whereas if you're a midfielder that makes a crappy play, you can go out and compensate for it five seconds later. You have to be able to move on from negative moments when you're in a role like that. It's like in baseball being a designated hitter or a kicker in football where you don't have that many plays, so you can't let one negative play completely derail you. The difference is, even if you kick 0-4, you probably won't be cut, whereas if you miss four field goals, you will be. Shifting toward the Swans, who I thought really highly of going into this game with how they came from behind to get a couple really important wins. I just think they wasted a really good day from Isaac Heaney. He got into the right spaces, was a good passer and a good kicker for goal, ended up with four straight, but no one else was nearly as strong as him. That was surprising with Buddy back, with Sam Reed going as well as he did. Maybe the two of them got in their way a little bit at times, which is something we feared. However, Reed is more functional in the middle of the ground. I just expected someone else to step up for them, and it didn't happen. Usually, it seems like they've got this embarrassment of riches where, you know, it's like five out of six pieces will contribute and they can afford to have that one struggle. Instead, this time it was really Eni and what else? I mean, Callum Mills was his usual self. Luke Parker had an okay game. There really wasn't much else, and it seemed like it's kind of a collective off day for them. And with how crowded the ladder is, you've got to take care of the teams that are near you and beneath you in order to at least stay where you are. And even if Port were putting together complete performances coming in, the onus was on Sydney to win this one. So what if you're in a tough road environment? You have that embarrassment of riches pretty much throughout the field. You've got the two McCartans back there. You got Dane Rampey, who had come in performing well on some primary and mostly secondary targets. And they were outdone all over the Oval, aside from one player. Looking at Fox Footy's The Run Home, they do have the Swans with the sixth easiest schedule remaining. They do have games against Essendon, Adelaide, and North. So there is definitely still a very feasible path for them to crack the top four. But this is the sort of game that should raise some alarm bells. But knowing how good of a coach John Longmire is, this might just be the perfect time of the season to have a slump. Because in turn, you're going to be able to adjust from it and put yourself in position heading into the home stretch to make a nice run. I'm still not going to sound the alarm bells on Sydney, but talk to me after they play St. Kilda this coming Saturday night. The main thing I noticed from the Swans is that Port Adelaide's pressure forced them to go much more slowly than usual, and that certainly didn't help, but they also just kicked poorly from full back. Dane Rampey's kickouts let them down a couple times, and they just gave away some easy points. Other than Heaney, the player that I did notice was James Rowbottom. He does some good work around pressure and contests. They just didn't breed as many points as they usually did. You mentioned Callum Mills and Luke Parker. Mills had a goal, 27 disposals, gained 573 meters. 
We've come to expect that sort of game from him. We've come to expect Luke Parker to be a high-touch guy. 26 disposals and 10 clearances. And Jake Lloyd had eight intercepts, but part of that is from just how much forward time Ford ended up getting. It was pretty much one-way traffic for almost the entire third quarter. Combine that with Port being much more efficient in the forward half and them just spreading the ground well, varying up their targets even when Todd Marshall is the clear go-to guy and Dan Houston and Mitch Georgiatis really helping make up for not having Boak and Gray in there, along with Rosie having at least a season-best game, if not career-best. And things are looking up for Port longer term. They're a team that still likes running through some of their older pieces, but even when they didn't have that, they were more than okay against a team that, against a caliber of team that they would need to beat come September. That they can run through different pieces shows that they can and should adjust mid-game when a game plan doesn't come to fruition. And they did. Tico went down, Butters had a really hot start, was the highest rated guy on the ground despite coming off the bench before he went off with with what looks like a strained medial ligament in his left knee. As much as we praise Longmire for adjusting, Hinkley did that much better. And that's the type of coaching job that could save him. If he can make this sort of adjustment regularly, there's hope for Port Adelaide. That's a big if, though. Notable individual performers for Port Adelaide. Ollie Wines, 34 disposals. Carl Amon, 31 disposals, 7 marks, 608 meters gained. He's more of a mid-forward than a full-on forward, and that's another thing that I don't think Hinkley realized right away this season. But Amon seems a lot more at home where he is now, and maybe him finding this form might convince him to stick around? Connor Rosie, you mentioned, a goal and 29 disposals. Darcy Byrne-Jones, 28 disposals and 9 intercepts. Riley Bonner, a goal out of the back to go with 27 disposals, 9 marks, and 513 meters gained. Ryan Burton, 20 disposals, 8 marks, 607 meters gained. Todd Marshall, 4 goals, 2 behinds, and 8 marks. And Tom Clurry with 8 intercepts. As much as Port dominated the forward halftime, some of their best work was fueled by their defense. You mentioned every one of their half-back line between Burton, Byrne-Jones, and Bonner. This was probably a season-best game for Byrne-Jones, at least in terms of recognition. Seems like the commentators were finally properly adjudicating his impact. Tom Clurry had a strong game in the back. Tom Jonas, I think, had his best game in a number of rounds and maybe for the season as well. Was spoiling really well. Had some intelligent plays as well to prevent some goals. Remember, one of the behinds he rushed being a really impressive move. And Alir Alir, after getting caught once between a couple of his taller former teammates, stuck with Buddy most of the way from there and really limited his impact. I think that may have been why Cindy were going through Heaney so much is that they wanted to avoid Alir. But there was really no one you could completely avoid back there. And the Powers back six all did a damn good job. This sort of game makes me want to go back and really dive into the first five games for Port and see just how radical their adjustments have been because it doesn't make sense now with performances they've given that they managed to drop their first five, even if they had a tougher schedule to begin with. If they played Hawthorne again, they'd take them. I trust them against Carlton right now. I might even trust them against Brisbane in Adelaide. The thing is with Hawthorne, they were basically facing a new team that they didn't really have a lot of prior information on. So that's definitely a team that you would want to face later in the season. And that's one of the things I was thinking. I just thought that they completely stunk in that game as well, Port. But they're looking way up. 
They've won six of eight, and even though they're two wins and percentage out of finals right now, they aren't done for. I said before this round that I thought they might have already been dead, and I'm glad to be proven wrong here. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to follow us on Twitter at AmericansFooty. If you haven't done so already, it's where we provide our real-time thoughts for all 207 games, I believe it is, during the season, counting finals and whatever else comes to mind throughout the week. Individually, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media, and Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CatNameBrian. He's also sleeping right next to me, and he's really out of it because he is twitching in his sleep. We tend to be especially long-winded when talking about our own teams, and they played each other this week, so buckle up. This could go on for a while. I predicted that I would be disappointed with an unfulfilling Geelong win over West Coast, and I would say largely that's what we got, although I came away actually kind of impressed with the Eagles, and don't you dare do that. At the very least, aware that they're not good, but there are pieces there, and they're not going to be as much of a dumpster fire in the second half as they were to start the year, which I hope they compete and give me reason to watch them week in and week out. And I hope they don't let other teams fatten up on percentage against them, because they certainly didn't let Geelong. Eagles 9-9-63, defeated by Geelong 12-9-81. And despite that, the Eagles are still in last by .132%. We're coming for you, North, I promise. My overall thoughts on this game were that both teams' midfields let them down. I was more unsure of the Eagles' defense than I'd been in a while. Maybe it's because Geelong had done so well with Tom Stewart out that I was really scared of what was going to happen with him back in. Maybe it was because I expected Jeremy McGovern to go down injured again because it seems like at this point he has glass tendons and paper ligaments. This time, though, it actually was his bones. A pretty severe rib injury coming from a bump that Jeremy Cameron laid on him spent two nights at Royal Perth Hospital. But still without him, the defense stood up. Tom Barris did a hell of a job out there. Red Bazzo was admirable upon debut. And, and for important parts of the game, they were able to hold Geelong's key forwards at bay. The better team did win in the end, but the Eagles put up much more of a fight than I expected even with Geelong having this whole thing with underperforming out of the bye, though the last three years, they've won out of the bye. The second quarter was one of the worst quarters Geelong have played all season. They let a 25-point lead fall away and didn't even take the lead into halftime when Tyson Stengel had a really bad kick, miss everything. That was really the only thing Tyson did wrong all game, though. He was one of the best players out there for the Cats. Geelong did take back over in the third quarter, though Jack Petrocelli did kick it behind that gave the Eagles a short-lived one-point lead. It was good while it lasted. Isaac Smith scored off of a Stengel entry kick, and considering that Petrocelli, his kick that gave the Eagles the lead was a behind that he should have probably converted into a goal. You could call that an 11-point swing. Then Geelong finally overcame their handball issues because... For the first two quarters, the Cats have been wildly sloppy on handballs. They finally got going with a great sequence to Mitch Duncan. Then a high tackle on Tom Hawkins set up his 700th goal. Brad Close finally got involved in that third quarter. He touched the ball and good things happened. What do you know? I don't get why Chris Scott insists on playing him forward when it hasn't worked before and didn't here. By the end of the quarter, the lead had been as large as 24, though it got into the fourth back at 18. 
And the Cats didn't really get the goal to put the game away until a little under four minutes left when Sam Manigola, playing his first game of the year, set up Hawkins for number 701. Manigola looked really good out there. Clearly, Geelong budgeted his recovery time well and only put him out there once he was at 100%. I thought he was one of the best out there and is a contention for votes. Two goals in the behind, 20 disposals, and seven marks. I also want to mention that first quarter that the Cats came out of with a 28-15 lead. They got a Hawkins goal after the siren. And even then, they probably shouldn't have had the lead they did, but the Eagles missed some really easy kicks. I was really critical of Josh Kennedy in that opening quarter. Even with a couple deeks that he made to set up chances, I just thought overall his kicking was terrible. And I was wondering why the hell did he decide to play on this year? Ended up rounding into form as the game went on, but had he been able to convert one or two of those chances in the first, we could have been talking about a crazy upset. His marking ability is still really good. He's able to create space for himself and match up with good defenders, but yeah, the kicking just isn't where it used to be. Did end, up, did end up kicking two goals, two behinds. The old Josh Kennedy kicks at least three goals out of that, maybe four. And speaking of the typical forward targets for the Eagles, what the fuck was Jack Darling doing playing way back on Jeremy Cameron in parts of the second quarter? Did not work at all. The Eagles bailed out a lot of Geelong's mistakes in the first half, tidied things up in the second half, but let's be real, that upset talk for me is nonsense. I think Geelong would have found a way to win the game regardless. Tyson Stengel was playing out of his mind, and we're seeing more and more of the work that Eddie Betts has done with him. The thing is, I think a lot of the talent with Tyson is inherent. It's just a matter of keeping him in line and having him surrounded by good influences. And just looking at like his posts on Instagram and stuff, he seems to really have a stable living situation right now. And that's really good. And that's going to help him not just be an effective football player, but get his life together. And that's awesome. And it makes him really easy to root for. Defensively for Geelong... Tom Stewart actually had a pretty quiet game compared to usual, though I think that was by no fault of his own. It's that there were times, especially in the second quarter, when the Eagles were outnumbering Geelong, going through the middle of the ground, just slicing them up. And then Stewart, you know, you can only intercept so many balls when you're playing one on three. Sam DeConing did have a really quality game with seven intercepts. I thought Jake Kolajashny had a quietly decent game, and he's been the target of a lot of criticism this year because he's had... Kind of boneheaded mistakes, you know, you'll see at least once every few weeks he tries to punch a ball away instead of just mark it. He had a pretty fundamentally solid game this round. I actually thought, though he did end up with decent disposal numbers, this was, at least in my eyes, Tom Atkins, his worst game of the year. And I think that illustrates his importance because when he's on, it really takes the cast to the next level where you have not just DeConing and Stewart leading the defense, but Atkins as well. The game against Port Adelaide, Atkins played out of his mind. And I think this game proved you can get by without Tom Atkins at his best. But when he is playing really well, that's the difference between being good and being great. Speaking of good, Cam Guthrie was very good. 25 disposals and 13 tackles. Zach Tui, 21 disposals and 9 marks. Zach Guthrie, another quality game. He finished with 10 marks. By and large, it was still the older part of the Eagles list that drove their success, though. Though some of the premiership staples that have come to the fore in performances thus far this season weren't as much of a factor here. Andrew Gaff had another really solid game. 
27 disposals. Jack Redden with 24, seven tackles and six marks. Elliot Yo actually got a full game in and showed what he's still able to accomplish. 22 touches, nine marks, 563 meters. Shannon Hearn is still a workhorse out of the back, 20 disposals and 11 marks. But Tom Barris stole the show back there. 12 intercepts as part of an 18 disposal day. My faith in him continues to increase in terms of him being their defensive quarterback for years to come. And Jake Waterman has been in and out of the side the past couple years. I think the day that he had could help cement a role for him going forward. 16 disposals, 8 marks, and kicking 2-1. I think there's a clear top, top tier of intercept defenders with Tom Stewart, Patty McCartan, Stephen May in that mix as well. I think Tom Barris is in like the very next tier, and that's not a bad place to be. That's the sort of guy that you can anchor your defense around. I thought the Eagles defenders played very fundamentally solid. And even though it was against Geelong, it was nice to see the Eagles give fans a reason to actually be invested in the game. You know, you can tell it's a smart football crowd where when they would have a good sequence, whether or not it led to a score, they were getting into it. And this was with a stadium that was not much more than half full. And it reminds you just how passionate football fans in Perth are. I mean, we've seen the Fremantle crowds this year. It's nice to see something from the Eagles to build off. They're ultimately sloppy in the forward half, whether that was in terms of kicks towards goal or having an inside 50 that ended up completely empty because of a bad handball or bad kick that ended up resulting in a turnover. The sort of things that you can understand why they're a little less polished considering what they've been missing. And hopefully having Liam Ryan back soon would help alleviate some of that. But at the very least, they look like an aging, not very good team with some guys who kind of show off a little bit of their past glory, some young guys with potential, and they actually played hard. And if they do that every week or just every home game, they'll at least be worth watching in the second half of the season and should be able to stay out of the wooden spoon. I'd say in terms of the aging and not very good, that that seems to be more the case in the forward two-thirds of the ground. Looking at the back, you have some good signs there. I liked what I saw out of Red Bazo's debut. Six marks back there was pretty solid. We mentioned Barris. I think Brady Huff is a really smart score starter back there. He had five score involvements, and that's damn good for someone playing in the back. Kind of like what Nick Blakey does for Sydney when he's in form. Huff definitely has that potential to be that good things happen when he touches the ball kind of guy. Jermaine Jones played further back as well. Typically a guy you'd find in the real heart of the midfield, but... Looked pretty natural there at halfback. And I was also thinking, wait, that was without Alex Witherden. I found him to be a surprise omission. I thought that guys like him, Greg Clark, who ended up being the sub and did some good work there, and Isaiah Winder, those are guys that could fuel the Eagles' success all over the ground going forward. It was unfortunate that a couple of them had to miss this game. But the fact that they did meant that we were able to focus on some other younger guys that showed positives. And I'm all for that. As for Jones, I think he's a guy that you need to find a way to work into the lineup every week. And I like the idea of testing him out in different roles to see, all right, where is he going to play for us moving forward? Because he's definitely a guy that should factor into the Eagles' long-term plans. It's just a matter of where. So you can figure this out through trial and error. You're at a point in the season where there's really no harm in giving guys a shot in different spots. So I think they should keep doing that. Some weeks it might completely blow up on them, but what do you have to lose? The next step in West Coast game will be getting those last kicks right. 
those last kicks to set up scores, shoring up the latter part of that midfield movement. They can enter the middle third fine. It's some of those exits that let them down for some of the sloppiest parts of play throughout the day. And that's a part of the game where experience will definitely help, but coaching will be able to do a lot more, especially in the short term. So if Adam Simpson and his staff stick around for another year, Matthew Knights is going to be a really important piece to accelerate the Eagles' development. At 47.5% efficiency inside 50, the Eagles were actually a good four points better than their season average. And I thought they were still really sloppy there. So I think that's just more of a reflection on how bad things were. I think they passed rock bottom, though. This coming week against Essendon has suddenly become a surprisingly compelling game that I'm actually looking forward to. Unfortunately, there is an overlap. Weird for that to happen on a Friday, but I'm more than ready to be up for that. That's going to be a 3.40 a.m. bounce for us here in the Pacific time zone, and I will be more than ready for it. A game between two of the bottom three teams more than halfway through the season should not be this compelling. One thing I was not happy with from the Eagles was Willie Rioli, who quickly ascended up my shit list as one of the dirtiest players in the league taking multiple cheap shots, one of which on Sam DeConing cost Josh Kennedy a shot at a goal. And I feel bad saying this because, first off, the Rioli family is football royalty. Second, I'm sure that Willie and the rest of his family have faced a lot of unnecessary abuse just for being indigenous, but this has nothing to do with his background and has everything to do with just him being a dirty player, cheap shotting guys, and then starting fights that he can't finish, you know, I don't like Peter Adams, but at least if he starts something, he'll stay in there and face the heat. Whereas Rioli, it's like, if you can't take the heat, why are you feeding the fire? And he's a skilled player. That's the most frustrating part. He doesn't need to do this stuff. I'm shocked that he only got a $2,000 fine for that. How that was considered low impact is beyond me. I mean... I hope Adam Simpson lays down the law and benches him for a game. I think that could end up being more of a detriment to the rest of the team, but you got to get your guys in line. And when wins and losses aren't as much of a priority right now. And when you might actually want to lose. I hate bringing up tanking, especially when there was the whole Melbourne thing. But if you want that top choice in the draft, it's there for the taking. All right, hopefully that didn't go on too long so that all non-Cats and non-Eagles fans didn't completely tune out. And I'm certainly glad that I didn't tune out after that game either because holy offense, Greater Western Sydney and Western Bulldogs, this was a return to some 90s and early 2000s footing with these monster scores, little resistance, and it was just a really fun game. And it's a shame that there were 6,000 fans there for it. And a decent amount of those were Bulldogs fans. Goes to show maybe some of the damage done by the Giants splitting their time between Western Sydney and Canberra is that they don't really have a solid fan base in their main area, even when they had that grand final run in 2019. I mean, the Canberra crowds are awesome. The Tom Green fan club was great. But my impression from the crowd disparity at the show round is just... Canberra needs their own team. If the league does expand and gets Tasmania, hopefully Canberra comes right in with them, and hopefully that'll help the Giants as well, because then they'd be able to play 11 home games in Sydney and help really grow their base there, because they're an entertaining team again. They have players that can run all over the place, and Toby Green ought to be enough to draw a few thousand more fans every week on his own. Shit happens when he's on the field, whether it's tabloid-type drama or just really good football, and in this case... 
It was really good football. May have been the best player out there. He can be a one-man wrecking crew out there. And even though GWS gave a pretty complete effort again, he spearheaded that. That said, this was not a good defensive game for the Giants. Or the Bulldogs. To the Bulldogs' credit, I said, I mean, 35 goals overall speaks for itself. GWS 16-9-105, defeated by the Bulldogs 19-11-125. The notes that I took on this game are ridiculously long, and that's only because of how many scores there were. Throughout this season, the Bulldogs have gotten the job done when their backs are up against the wall. Defensively, this was not a pretty game for them, but they were authoritative whenever they had the ball. They were efficient getting to the forward 50. They made good on their opportunities there. And ultimately, though, again, they really left a lot to be desired defensively. They did what they needed to with big games from the likes of Jack McRae, Marcus Bonampelli, Adam Trelor, Josh Dunkley. The list goes on. Aaron Naughton with five goals in the behind. Cody Waitman kicked five goals, then dislocated his elbow, got it popped back in, and stayed in the game. And he'll likely have to play with his elbow the way it is for the rest of the season. He'd be looking at probably a month, if not more, on the sidelines if they have to do work on it. And with how vital he was to their success here, I think he and the team will be more than willing to stick him out there as is. And it also goes to show that he doesn't have to fight for free kicks to make a huge impact. He was just a damn solid player out there this time. He'll have some games where he kicks 0-3, and he'll have some games like this where he ends up with five goals. But again, he doesn't need the green shirt's help to do that. He's a really good marker, even though he's on the smaller side. And I think he and Aaron Naughton, their styles complement each other really well. Both of them can jump for marks well, but Waitman's the more proficient of the two on the ground. His lesser stature means that he's better at getting low and taking stuff off the deck. And also, he's good at just boxing people out, getting space. And that's a huge asset for a small forward. I feel like this was yet another game, though, where the Bulldogs won because of high-level talent instead of a really sound system, a really good game plan. And generally, that's not a recipe for success. It's definitely not a recipe for success in the NFL, Regardless of how they got it done, the win was massive for them in terms of keeping them within four points of the current eight, and also just putting themselves past all the Bailey Smith drama. They left that behind. They kicked the hell out of the ball. Marcus Bonapelli spent some more time toward the middle of the ground, and he was able to make up for the mullet not being there, along with the rest of the midfield doing their job. Those big possession numbers that Smith put up were distributed throughout the whole of the midfield and half-forward lines. Jack McRae with 37 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 tackles, and 577 meters gained. He is one of the quietest elite players in the AFL. Adam Trelor with 31, Bonapelli 28 and 512 meters. Josh Dunkley, 27, 10 score involvements, 8 tackles, 8 intercepts. Tom Libertore, one of his more visible games, 26 disposals and 10 clearances. We mentioned the big scores already, Cody Waitman and Aaron Naughton. Looking further back, Alex Keith had nine intercepts, and I will also mention he's a former cricketer. He was also basically the only guy on either team interested in playing defense. And I saved Tim English for last because he had a really impressive day. 34 hitouts, 23 disposals, 10 clearances. He's the most plug-and-play ruck in the game where he'll make an impact marking pretty much all over the ground, and he moves the ball really smartly as well. 
but he ended up getting knocked around a bit too much in this one because he's now in concussion protocol. Didn't have to exit the game for it, but the symptoms afterward were enough to rule him out for next week. Admittedly, it was a letdown for, it was another letdown of the game for Braden Proust, and I think Proust may have accelerated those concussion symptoms for English when he put on a dangerous tackle that ended up seeing him get his third suspension of the year. Looking at that replay, I could definitely see some whiplash effects on English from that. But going back to Proust, he's a talent out there. He's got capability in the ruck and going forward, but he's got to learn how to stay on the field. He's got to reel himself in. As for the other guys who are on the field for GWS, the aforementioned Toby Green, seven goals, two behinds, 14 score involvements, 622 meters gained. Stephen Canelio in his eyebrow, two goals, a behind, 32 disposals, 10 score involvements. Tom Green and his fan club, who I'm sure were watching from Canberra, 32 disposals and eight clearances. Lockie Whitfield, 30 disposals. Jesse Hogan, three goals, a behind, and seven marks. Jake McCarty, a pair of goals, a behind, and seven marks. Adam Kennedy, eight marks. And Harry Himmelberg, seven marks. Kennedy and Himmelberg were somewhat interested in playing defense at times. Himmelberg was put into some weird spots at times, even went up in the ruck once, which I just thought was way off. He's versatile, but not versatile enough to play every position. This game ended up being kind of a blur, not just because it was a really late game for us being a 2.25 a.m. bounce, but also because of just the sheer amount of scores. There was one clearance that did stand out to me where the Bulldogs kind of did a Melbourne and went goal, center clearance, goal, center clearance, goal, ended up being 18 points in just 32 seconds of clock time, Aaron Naughton got the first, then Lockie McNeil the second, and Anthony Scott the third. And I was happy that Scott got that third one because he had made those other two happen with his clearance work. I think he's another just underrated piece for them. And he's someone who had had trouble cracking the side at times. So the list dilemma is definitely on for the dogs. Jamar Eugle Hagen got back in and scored. But the question remains how much of this win was raw ability and how much can Luke Beveridge actually put together a solid game plan. What Beveridge ends up manufacturing will probably end up determining whether or, they, whether or not they make the eight. And if they don't, it's just going to leave me wondering how much did raw talent carry them last year? I was kind of out of it for that Saturday nightcap. You were definitely way out of it. I saw what I needed to. I saw the big third quarter run where the Bulldogs pulled away going to go back over the course of the week and try to watch some of the parts that I wasn't as laser focused on, but we got the main gist of it. Meanwhile, you were simply out as in out of the house and enjoying yourself, actually spending time with people on a Saturday night, which you hadn't done really since the start of the season, as you mentioned in that Shannon Gill article for Code. And that meant I had to be eagle-eyed, no pun intended, when it came to the one Sunday game between the Suns and Crows. Gold Coast won this one 18-8-116 to 10-13-73. I just want to put it out there right now. Three votes to Alex Davies' grandpa. Highlight of the week, one of the highlights of the year. Davies' mom's side is Japanese, and his grandfather apparently has was able to make his way from Japan for his first ever AFL game in person, and Alex himself did not disappoint. Had a tackle on Jordan Dawson, Late in the second quarter, that led to a point-blank goal for Isaac Rankin that put the Suns up 26. And he also got the second-to-last goal of the game right at the end. On top of Davies' grandfather just being there, he was in the circle, seeing Suns of the Gold Coast sky, 
And you saw him talking with Stuart Dew a bit after the game and giving the goal signal along with him. I mean, it's just priceless stuff. Props to the grandfathers this week. A lot of credit to the Suns as an organization for making this happen. And one of the coolest things as COVID restrictions have continued to be stripped down, getting to actually see players' families come into the rooms after games has been so fun. Last round, it was Jack Crisp's daughters getting spooked when everyone gave the huge yell before good old Collingwood forever. This one, it was the opposite end of the age spectrum. We had that and we had Massimo's family. It was just, again, good week for Nono, good week for Oji-san. Not much to write home about when it came to the first quarter. Slow play at the start, then just ended up being sloppy. A couple easy misses both ways. Crows led 14-8 to after the first. And then the Suns kicked six goals to one in the second quarter. Mabi Chol with two really quick ones to start off. A really solid game from him, though he did get tired at the end. Went into the ruck more often than usual because it was a down game for Jared Witz, but didn't end up mattering. Remember, I said the Crows didn't have anyone who could match up with Mabior. I mean, hardly anyone does. The only two guys that stand out to me throughout the AFL that might be able to go up against him are his former teammate Dylan Grimes and Mark Blitzobs. Oh yeah, the former steeplechaser. And those should be really fun matchups to watch later on in the year. The Crows had a big opportunity to steady things shortly after that when Wayne Millera missed from 20 meters out straight in front. And while they ended up getting the next goal from one of our favorite young players throughout the league, Riley Philthorpe, who unfortunately got injured and subbed out later on, the Suns dominated the second quarter. Isaac Rankin really turned it on. He's another one of those players where good things happen when he touches the ball. It's less common for us to think of forwards like that when the score involvement numbers go way up for them just because... They were at the end of a lot of sequences, but he's become really inventive with the ball in hand. And they got a whole lot of other strong targets, especially on the taller side. And with the different areas in which Mavi Chol and Levi Caswell do their best work, the commentators were talking about how Gold Coast could totally run with three tall forwards. Because like we said way earlier, Ben King is a really good runner and he could run from half forward and do his best work from there. And remember, we really thought the Suns were going to miss him at the start of the season now we're imagining how amazing it's going to be when he's back in because they're already 7-6 and six and playing way above where we both expected them to be. I mean, I had a pegged as a potential wooden spooner. I thought there was an avenue for them to be around this level, but considering how poorly they've started the season, for them to really get it into gear like this, I don't know the last time they've had like this level of sustained success over the course of multiple weeks. So that's been really entertaining to watch. You can think back to maybe... 2013, 2014. The difference is back then it was the Gary Ablett Jr. show. There's no one player that is making or breaking them, even when one of their players may break something or just really badly dislocate something because the green whistle had to come out for Will Powell. I am glad they didn't get a full angle of the injury he suffered. It's at least a really badly dislocated knee. There may be some ligament damage as well. Either way, it's not good, and he had been doing some really good work on the wing. He had been the one stepping up with Lockie Weller out. And when that area opened up, the Crows were able to use it pretty well. Darcy Fogarty was able to do some nice things, starting more from the center of the ground. Fogarty's work overall really impressed me. He's a good marking kick close to goal, but he gave better effort in all areas, and I think that bodes really well for his longer-term prospects especially when there's the potential for Taylor Walker to be out the door as early as this offseason. 
Sam Barry was also really impressive for Adelaide, did really well in clearance work, made up for Ben Keys not being as prevalent, and until late, Nick Murray generally outdid Levi Casbold, but the Crows were really sloppy in some important parts of the game. When it came to their set shots, it was the most obvious, but they missed some connections that would have gotten them better looks inside 50. They gave up some dumb free kicks, even when umpiring was questionable. I thought there were some fouls that really stood out as kind of amateurish mistakes. I wouldn't necessarily say this was a letdown for them, though just because they got all sorts of chances despite having to tough it out a bit more than I'd like, and I expected their defense to largely be poor, and it was good to have one performer that stood out to me with how I've thought about them most of the way this year. I was more worried about Gold Coast coming in. They're coming off their bye. They didn't start this season well. Could they really regress with just one week off? And the answer was no, even with Weller being out of the picture, even though they lost two players at once with Powell getting injured really badly, and Connor Butterick also being sacked down after some hamstring troubles. They more than toughed this one out. They were able to score really quickly as they did at the end of the game to stretch out margins, that did good things for their percent at the end of it, and they stayed in touch with the eight. This is the first time they've been over 500 this late in the season since that aforementioned 2014 campaign. And again, they're a far more complete team than they were then, this game reflected really positively on Stewart Dew with the changes that he had to make during the game to make up for those two pieces going down. And all of a sudden, we could really be talking about him getting a two-year extension, maybe even during the season. John Ralph at halftime was implying that it would likely be waiting until the offseason, but the prognosis at this point looks good for Dew. I still would wait and see how the rest of this season plays out because I'd like to see him really prove more because even though he obviously hasn't gotten to work with a lot of great teams, it's not like he has an amazing track record. So whether or not they actually make the finals, if they continue on a positive trajectory throughout this season, I'd say, yeah, keep him around and see if you can keep elevating your game and keep building and eventually turn this into not just a finals appearance, but win at least one or two games there. Hard to believe that I've gone so far in this breakdown without highlighting the work that the Gold Coast midfielders did yet again. It's a real triumvirate they've got there with Tuke Miller, Noah Anderson, and Matt Rowell. They have very different roles within the midfield, but they all performed really well in this one. Miller's the most stationary of the bunch and is able to just move play along in any direction once he gets the ball. Anderson is really willing to run through the middle and use his speed to his advantage, and Rao has turned into one of the best inside mids in the competition. Really strong on the ground, a whole bunch of tackles, ground ball gets, moving the ball out of crowded areas to where Miller and Anderson operate best. Running through the significant stat lines for the Suns, Anderson, 28 disposals and 816 meters gained. Told he likes to run. Miller, 24 disposals, 454 meters. Rowell, 19 disposals, 11 tackles, and 7 intercepts. Sean Lemons, 9 intercepts. Ben Ainsworth, 3 goals and 2 behinds. I'll add that Chole and Casbolt each kicked 3 goals straight, and that Rankin kicked 3-2. He had one bad kick early on that ended up a behind where he just didn't follow through the whole way. But other than that, really solid game, 17 disposals, 5 marks. He's not only a fun player with the ball in hand, he's getting smarter 
with the ball in hand as well. And I think his success might be propelling the Suns just about as much as any other player because he started the year really slowly. Most notable stats for the Crows, Jordan Dawson, 32 disposals, 11 intercepts, 714 meters. Matt Crouch, 31 disposals and 7 tackles. Sam Berry, 25, 12 clearances, 7 tackles. Patrick Parnell in his second game, glad he was able to come back quickly. 14 disposals and 10 marks. Taylor Walker had 8 marks but only ended up kicking 1-3. Fogarty's 2 goals helped make up for that a little bit, and they had a whole bunch of goal kickers. 9 Crows ended up scoring their 10 goals, with Fogarty being the only one to get multiple. So that's a good sign. The thing is, even though they had about 7% better disposal efficiency overall and 7.5% better inside 50. It just didn't feel like it. The Suns cut off angles well, but the Crows just weren't tidy when they needed to be closer to goal, trying to get entries into 50. Makes me think a bit of how the Eagles were this past week as well, and that's going to be another spot where Koshi is going to need to come to the forefront. My overarching thought about this round could be summed up with one word, and that's parity. P-A-R-I-T-Y, not P-A-R-O-D-Y, though Ethan did go to a Weird Al concert this past week. Third time seeing him live. Highly recommended to anyone who hasn't. Highly recommended to anyone who has to go see him again. Don't know how much he tours Australia, but hopefully he does again soon. I think he's more of an American cultural institution than anything else, but I hope he has some international reach. Going back to the sort of evenness parity, the one that ends I-T-Y, Two wins separate 1st and ninth, and three separate 1st and 11th. And that means that there's really little margin for error. With a couple down games, teams could easily be bumped out of the top four or the top eight when it looked like they were locks for that a few weeks ago. Melbourne are certainly in peril of having to play an elimination final if they don't turn things around quickly. I know you think they will. And for all the good the St. Kilda have done, they've dropped to 8th, and their schedule isn't looking all that favorable. And the teams that are on the outside looking in I've got to be kicking themselves for not backing those wins early because as well as the Suns have played winning five of six, the Bulldogs in power having won four, they've still got their backs against the wall. We're almost there. We're almost at the end of this episode and I know how we can finish it. Go to the zoo? Flip off the monkeys? No. Go through the nominees. I don't know what kind of cultural imprint Anchorman the Legend of Ron Burgundy has in Australia, but for those of you who understood that reference, y'all are awesome. Round 13's mark of the week was Jack Silvani over Zach Reed. Your nominees for round 14, Tom DeConing over Tom Lynch. He put his knee kind of to the back of Lynch's head. You had Sam Draper over Dougal Howard. He didn't get a ton of elevation, but landed smoothly. And just for someone that big to get up at all is always fun to watch. And finally, Cody Waitman flying into a four-man pack. He ended up kind of getting Stephen Canelio with his right foot. Had Toey Green done that, he probably would have been looking at a suspension. I will note that Waitman took that mark before dislocating his elbow. I just think this is a lackluster week of nominees as a whole, both Mark and Goal doing the tiniest bit of foreshadowing because we're just about to talk about it. I think it kind of goes in order here with DeConing having the best of them, just between the greater elevation and the way he got into Lynch. I know that a lot of fans aren't a huge fan of Tom Lynch, He annoyed me this week. I get it. This isn't a mark that's going to be in the conversation Brownlow night, but it was cool in the moment, especially when a lot of things weren't going for Carlton. Good on Dougal Howard for being good sport about his mark. He was in the audience on bounce and made light of it, even though the Saints disappointed this week. 
Round 13's Goal of the Week. I was a little surprised that this one got nominated, but it was Andrew Brayshaw soccering at a dribbler with about five minutes left despite being spun around by Harry Morrison. Looking back, I definitely understand why it was so impressive, not just in the context of the game, but as a goal at any time. This round's nominees, you got Jack Billings receiving a handball from Max King and kicking a check side on the run deep in the left-hand pocket. You got Darcy Fogarty crumbing out the back of a pack on the left wing, kicking and then receiving from Shane McAdam and finishing from 47. There really was no defensive presence ahead of that, though. It was a good textbook give and go. It was well executed. It just wasn't, oh my god, you have to see this. It's not like the one that Kazi Pickett almost had worked perfectly last year that I thought could have been goal of the year had the connections all gone smoothly. And then you also have Jack Petrocelli getting the ball off hands out of the back of a marking pack. He evaded Sam DeConing and snapped on the right from 23. I really don't know which direction to go here. Petrocelli's was good because he was able to get around DeConing and really did it all himself in terms of getting in the right position, whereas Billings had to get the ball from someone else shortly before he kicked. I guess I'm going with Petrocelli then, though I'm not convinced. I'm going with none of them. They were all weak. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Don't forget, we're going to be heading back to two episodes a week now that the buys have concluded. Just the usual preview and recap. We don't really have any more progress reports to do for the time being. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me personally at Castle Media. I am at BenjaminHK01. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is sleeping calmly in the middle of Ethan's bed. He was being a dickhead earlier, but we were able to corral him before we recorded the back two-thirds of this episode. You can find him on Instagram, at catnamedryan. You can find this podcast wherever you found it so you can listen to this one. We'll see you soon for the round 15 preview. That's going to be a really important round. You got all sorts of potential finalists matching up against each other. But we'll talk more about that in a couple days' time. Thanks a lot for listening.